0: The message. Um, I had this friend. I have two friends. And, and maybe you have friends like this. I have one friend who I've known him since he was young. And he was someone who always embellished in things. Like he would make up stories. Do you know anybody like this? He would, he would, he would constantly, and it, it would be so blatant, I, I didn't even know what to do. But I would just be listening like, I know you're lying right now. And then I have this other friend, and we were all friends together. And this other friend, who is definitely one of my closest, he could not not tell the truth. Do you have a friend like that? They have to tell the truth. If something's even off, like I'll be saying, telling a story, and he'll be like, well, no, 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 that's not exactly how it is. I'm like, cool it, okay? It makes the story better. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm talking about? And so I had these two friends. And it was funny because when they would be together, my friend who would just lie, I mean, he had a problem. He would just lie. And my other friend, you could it, it, it just was almost impossible to be around him. And then I noticed the friend who lies always had a hard time being around the friend who would call him out on the truth. And then so he would just try to avoid it, and it become just always an issue. And then I started to just realize that my friend who called out the truth was right. I should stop the lies right in front of me. You know what I'm talking about? And so I started to do it. And I remember this guy who would lie all the time told me a story that I was in the story And that this situation happened, but I know I wasn't there or in that story. And he then tried to convince me and gaslight me that I was actually in the story. And I'm telling him I wasn't. And then finally I said, you know what, I've had enough. I cannot with this anymore. You know, the truth exposes a facade a lot. I think a lot of times we just want to just nod and agree like I would do with my friend and not speak truth and not have truth be what, what, what really wins out the day. We go through a lot of things. We tolerate a lot of things. We nod and we agree, but we don't share or live in that truth. The gospel is truth. Now, when you think of the gospel, it's the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and everything that comes with that for this world and for you. But the gospel threatens, I think, the lies of a defeated rule that is clinging to power. When the gospel arrives in someone's life, you feel the conflict, do you not? You once ruled your own life, and now you're asking questions about things you used to do because the gospel is transforming you in your life. I love and I hate this process. Are you with me? This is a tough process because you know you feel inside in the spirits confirming that the way you had behaved or thought or pattern was no longer a gospel pattern. And so you are at war within yourself and the power wants to cling to every bit of it, but the gospel ultimately threatens it. And it does that not just in our own individual level, but it does it on really a cosmic level. The gospel threatens powers. The gospel threatens division. It threatens ways of life that, that were, are contrary to God's world, his order, nature. It threatens that. And, it will, and the world will always viciously and violently fight back. Now, I'm not going to just put it all on the world. You will have this inner conflict within you all the time. You will fight back. You will deny You will avoid. You will, right, name it. So the the truth will will, will come in conflict with a a power that is lost, but the power that is lost will fight for every bit of space. I titled this message Dangerous Truths because this is what Paul does in this passage. You could read it like narrative, but sometimes when you're reading the Bible, a sermon will stand out. And you should read it like you're looking for a sermon too. Because we can glance over and go, this is just a narrative. Okay, this is a nice story. I get it. But I think with this, beyond all the other stories leading up to this, we see very significant truths that Paul says briefly, but they shape the entire narrative. And there's three of them in this one, and they're really good, and that's why I called them dangerous truths. I have one child that when I share truth with them, and they don't want to hear it, and they're not young. <laughs> they, they cannot handle the truth. And so when I tell the truth and I say, I know this is what you did and are doing, they, they literally will do this. I, 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 I can't hear you. I, da, da. And then they eventually start to walk away. I'm like, it doesn't change anything. And I think when it comes to truth, these dangerous truths, we will, do it to our, we will do it ourselves, like, God, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. We'll do it. We're no different than my child. But the world will do this as well. And if the world cannot ignore you, the world will shut you up. And I think that's a shame for Christians, because the, the, the power of the resurrection, the power of life that you have inside of you, the way of which God is leading you to live is what... God is shaping the world to be. You should never be quiet about that. But start first within yourself before we go out and try to do this elsewhere. But I, I would say that my, my, the whole direction, the thing that we're going to see happening here is this is what's happening. It's a post-crucifixion world that Paul is running into that is grappling with its truth. It's no different then than it is now. It's, it, it's a, a, The post-crucifixion world is a different world that we are living out. And the world that has been, that is no more, is fighting to stay. But God is moving his reality forward into a new reality. Now, you got to think about this before we get into this piece in uh, uh, Acts chapter 23. Is Israel, this nation... has has experienced so many ripples along the way, so many things. So sometimes it's good to look back to understand what's happening right now. We do this in your life. Sometimes I understand where you're at now. I gotta look back. Sometimes I understand maybe some of your behaviors. I gotta ask questions to get further, back and back and back and go, ah, okay. So now I can be very much in the present context with a knowledge of the past. This is what's interesting. Israel has experienced these types of rule happening for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We don't know what this is like in the United States. That all of a sudden we're captured. A new rule is brought in. A new way of life is brought in. And then another nation captures us. And then a new rule and another way. And then another nation captures us. and Another rule, another way. So imagine these rhythms of life. The first one, I'll put his photo up on the screen. Asher Haddon was one of the great leaders of Assyria. He was an Assyrian king. But listen to these qualities. His desire was world dominance, right? Warfare was his method and their method. Fear, power, but ultimately obedience. This is what Israel had to live under. Nebuchadnezzar, we know from the Bible, Right? Nebuchadnezzar was the same of the Babylonian Empire. He desired power, world dominance, cultural destruction, and worshiped, to be worshipped as a god in total obedience. This is what Israel is experiencing. Alexander the Great, as great as we say he may be, he was brutal and horrific to conformity. And so Alexander the Great desired to reshape the world in his image, might, influence, power, and obedience. Israel is living under this for a period of time. Julius Caesar, now he was a a great warrior, but a brutal dictator. Julius Caesar desired to expand the empire to absolute rule, uh, uh, to absolute rule, uh, worshipped as a god. He was the first one in that Empire to do so. He did it by force, oppression, world dominance was in his goal and obedience was going to be the outcome of everybody he overtook. These are very, I I wanted them in stone so you could see that these existed still today. That, That these people were honored amongst their people but they were dominated everyone else and they had desire to rule the world. I feel like that's the nature of this fallen world. If I can't get your love, I will get you to fear me. And we see it over and over and over. And Israel is having this. And they're praying, God, send a Messiah. They're praying for one of these figure types to come and save them. But then look at Jesus. Jesus comes differently. The way he is portrayed is differently. He's not standing there with a helmet. He's not holding a scepter. He is not portrayed prominent over his people as a godlike figure. He is crucified. This is not what they wanted. This is not what they hoped for. This is not what they've been waiting for. But Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes. And the thief is an interesting word. Because remember when the two thieves were on the cross with Jesus, Right? They didn't steal something. That word in particular was given to those who were fighting in a rebellious nature against the powers that be. And so when the Bible says the thief comes, the rebellious nature against God's order and authority comes to only steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. This is the difference. This is the conflict. This is the rub happening here in Acts 23. Jesus is not what they thought of and not what they wanted. But this is how God, above all of our thoughts, above all of our nature, was going to bring salvation to the world through humility. I think what what the powers of the world could not do by shaping world and their image, ultimately by force, power, and domination, Jesus did in one moment with selflessness, love, and I think ultimately obedience. That's not the way to rule. That's not the way that they were hoping rule would come. He came very differently. I think Christians can struggle with this. Like, wait, 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 wait. Our way is selflessness, love, and obedience? That's how God rules the world and brings his kingdom to the world? Yeah, that's how he does it. We wanted those other four figures, but Jesus came very, very differently. His kingdom, though, if you think about it, he accomplished what none of them could accomplish. Did he not? They all wanted world dominance. They all wanted obedience. They wanted to be loved, if not feared, then. And Jesus comes and covers the globe with his kingdom and his people. He didn't win it by dominance. He won it by people's choice. And not only did they choose, but then they chose to obey. All over the world, they couldn't do what Jesus did and that people are doing now. In this passage, we're going to see three kingdom realities that Paul lives in, and we should take these to heart, and we should now not question so much, why did Paul, why was he so strong? Why was he such a great leader? These will give you exactly what was driving Paul all along. One, I'll put them up on the screen, good conscience. Now, I could do a whole sermon about this word, conscience, in the Bible, and I I could do a series on it, and I really should one day because it's very eye-opening but resurrection life is another one that Paul lives in these realities and then lastly is courage in Christ. He lives in these three realities and they manifest in this section here. Let's start with the first one, good conscience. Now, I wrote this down. Paul is in tune in tune with his self-awareness. This is what he means by I'm in good conscience. It, 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 is, it is informed, right? He's informed by biblical commandments. His conscience is informed by biblical commandments and Christian principles. And he is in a continual process of self-reflection. So his principles, his commandments that he's been given, that's what he weighs his decisions against. And he says, I'm in good conscience here. He's in self-reflection of where he's at. Meaning this, if you were to just put it simply, he is well with what's going on in his life. He's at peace. He's clear. His conscience is clear. I hear people say, like, but I'm a good person. And I'm like, yeah, that's good, but what do you weigh it against? You know? What do you weigh that I'm a good person against? Paul is weighing against his commandments, his principles, biblical principles, the spirit at work within him. And that is what he is in self-reflection about. His thoughts, when he says, I take them captive, Right? I renew my mind to the spirit, right, and the work that's going inside of me. He is constantly in self-reflection of what he is doing and thinking. And I think if we just say, well, I'm a good person, then it's like, but how do you measure that? Who decides that? What principles are guiding you and directing you? This is the beauty of Christianity is we have principles. We have commandments. The laws written in our hearts, actually on everyone's heart. If they choose to hear and listen, even though God has not been presented to them, or Christ. Though it's written in our hearts, and the Spirit affirms it. And the Spirit is leading us. And so, this is a huge deal. What is your self-reflection life in your every single day life? Are you clear? Oof. This is tough. I didn't like, I did, a, I did like a, a one-week study on conscience. And I just couldn't stop. All, all, all night, I was just on this all night. In times I could, and I was just like, what is oh my gosh, like Ryan, are you of good conscience? Could you say what Paul said when it comes to your life and how you live? It was very challenging for me. But here we go, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul has had this opportunity now to share to people who are not just the crowd and the mob. He is now sharing to people who has, he has their total attention and they are the religious leaders and the elite in Jerusalem. And this is probably the moment he's been waiting for. Honestly, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I was reading through and I just wanted to, I, I read through it first. And I was like, "Oof, that's a pretty bold statement. You know what I mean? Like when someone says, I'm a really good person. I'm like, eh, uh, I don't know you that Well, let's, let's see. Like, he makes this statement that's bold, but I don't think Paul says it, like, flippantly or arrogantly. He says it because he, everything he has been self-reflecting in his life and the life he's living out for others in his internal life is measured against something. And he says, I'm in good conscience. My motives are right. This word conscious, Paul, of all the times it's referenced, this word, and not only that, the context of that word, Paul uses it and references it in scripture two-thirds of the time. It's a very big deal to Paul. It's not pride. It's his assessment of his devotion to live honestly before God. I think Christians need to do this more. I'm not going to lie. I need to as a Christian to to really be in self-reflection about, is my conscience clear? When I encounter someone, and the things that naturally sometimes negatively want to happen, is it measured against my principles and commandments of Christ? And will I be clear on that? I think Paul was constantly here, measuring himself, right? His self-assessment, his self-reflection—he's clear. It's in his hidden thoughts and motives that Paul speaks from. We're so good. Can I just say we're so good with the outward reflection? Are we not? We can say the right words. We can, have, we, we can come across a certain way. But it, that's one thing. But how are we on the inside, in the hidden places, the secret places of our life, are we clear? I, I, I think this is true. And I think we should ask this of ourselves. I think we all want to live out that reality that Paul's living in clear conscience. This is why he could stand before them and preach the gospel. He was clear conscience. This is why he could stand up there and say, I've been obedient and I've been observant of all of your laws. I'm in good, clear conscience. I've followed the work of Christ. I, I wrote this after studying conscience for a while, and this is my conclusion. A clear conscience of a believer is a committed a commitment to truth. That's a clear conscience. And the courage to self-reflect on how well you're doing on that and to live out that reality for others it's a commitment it's courageous to ask yourself the questions you don't want to ask yourself to acknowledge the things you don't want to acknowledge to not just pass it by or hide it in the darkness but to actually go in to it it's very hard to do that and we might say like oh well the holy spirit will show it to me well we can ignore the holy spirit have we not done that before it's our active participation and self-reflection. Listen, if you've ever been in an argument with your spouse, let's just get real deep here. If you've ever been in an argument with your spouse, or one you will have one day maybe, you have to ask yourself some hard questions. I, I tell you what, I don't like losing arguments. I love to argue, and my wife hates to argue. And, and she will say a truth, and I will hate that truth, because the truth bears witness with me, but it bothers me, because I don't want to acknowledge the truth. Do, do you guys know what I'm talking about? No. You don't? Oh, you're in trouble. I'm coming right for you. Who said that? I don't think you're in clear conscience. <laughs> But I think that it's that thing of like we have to then at some point confront the truth, put our pride aside, not hide it, not justify it, not reason it away. We have to be honest and real with ourselves. And then the light can purify us. And then we can come to a place of hearing and understanding our spouse or an actual real change. This is the same way, I think, when it comes to that. I think the meaning here is, you know, don't miss, right, by this, by this statement. It's We don't miss, we don't ignore, we don't mental, do mental gymnastics of justification. We, the light shines in the innermost parts of our being and we allow it to be there. It goes beyond, you know, it, it, I'll tell you what, it translates beyond just our faith It it, it, it permeates the areas of our life where we live in honesty and truth. So when a lie wants to show up or to cover something or to hide something or to be a motive that is wrong and you know it's wrong, it is brought out into light and the truth will deal with it. You can't expect me or anybody else just to constantly call you out. You have to do this to yourself. We are actively working alongside the Holy Spirit in his sanctification process. I think a lot of times that people will be like, well, the Holy Spirit's going to sanctify me. If I read the Bible, then, then, then it will sanctify me. It will make me a better person. And that is true. That's where your principles and your commandments and your truths and revelation come from. But we need to pro- actively participate in that where we don't let things stay in the dark. We don't allow things to, to be where, justify where they are at. We drag them into the light, and we drag them into the light. And you will not like any bit of it. You will drag it into the light. But I tell you what, when Jesus said that you come to live and live life to its fullest, that's partially what it means, is to be free. Secrets will bind you. Motives will hurt you. And they hold you into a place and make you stagnant. Paul knows that. Romans 8.28, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. While you're weak and you're struggling to bring it out into the light or to go where you don't want to go, the Spirit will help you through that process. You have to allow Him to do so. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Spirit, though, because we can actively stop that work in our life. I can't tell you, and I'm embarrassed to say how many times the Spirit has been dealing with something I mean. I'm like, no, 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 not today, Spirit. We're not, do- <laughs> We're not doing that today. And I can quench the actual work of the Spirit for my life and for my betterment. Paul says, I live in clear conscience. I know who I am. But I think this, this thought here, before we jump into the rest of the narrative, is that let's fight for every inch of ground. To live in good conscience before God and others. Let's fight for every inch of ground. Let's not let it it, it get away from us. You're going to have to fight for that. To live in clear conscience. It's very hard. But it's part of the sanctification process in our life. That shines your light brighter and brighter and brighter. Okay, verse 2. Wow, we just got through one verse. I'm so sorry. Verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those uh, uh, who stood by him to strike him on the mouth after he says, I stand in good conscience before God today. It's interesting because Ananias, he's this high priest. He's an elected official. And he is elected because he's very cozy with Rome. He is the leader of the Sanhedrin. He's the leader of the Sadducees. And he is uh, a, a political figure. And he is someone, I think, that is, uh, doesn't deserve the job. How about that? But he's there. He has Historically, when written about him, he has questionable tactics of violence. Let's just put it that way. And this is what's happening right here. But listen to what Paul says. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, I don't know what Paul was feeling, but this is the first time I saw Paul strike back like this. Like, he just came right after him. It wasn't Christ-like. It, it wasn't, because Jesus stood there and dealt with it. But it, it's something that we can see Paul's human nature here. He came back and, and he came back strong, and he came back scripturally as well. But one of the things I do appreciate what he said was, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. This is kind of prophetic, by the way, because Ananias, this guy, uh, in the lead-up of the destruction of Jerusalem in a few years from this time, he will be hiding in an aqueduct, and he will be drugged out by zealots, and he will be murdered by those zealots. This time is coming to an end. But Paul says, you whitewashed wall. I think that's what stood out to me when we're talking about a conscience. We're talking about good conscience. It's very interesting to me. Whitewashed wall. Jesus says this about the tomb, right? Doesn't he say, like, you're, you're dead on the inside, but it looks clean on the outside, right? This is not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a, a reference to Ezekiel 13. And Ezekiel 13 is interesting because God is going to bring judgment to the people, Because their leaders are corrupt, and they're fake. And they're coming in the name of God, Yahweh, but they are leading the people in destruction. God is speaking to them, and they're saying something different to the people, and God is saying, destruction's coming your way, and they are lying to the people saying there's peace when there is no peace. There's justice when there is no justice. And so Ezekiel uses this this metaphor that's interesting that Paul picks up on, And the metaphor is this, is that he says, you are like those who build a wall without mortar. Brick by brick, you lay it up, but you have nothing holding it together, nothing to bond it. So what you've done is you've gone out and you've skim coated the outside of the wall with a very thin veneer to make it look like it's stronger than it is. And God says, I'm going to destroy that wall and I'm going to bring it to the ground. And you're gonna go down with that wall. It's such a strong, strong metaphor about a reminder for us to not be whitewashed walls, to live in good conscience, to not be fake, but to be honest and real and to be true before God. I think this is what we would call spiritual integrity. Our, in, our inside, deep, most inside parts are reflecting the outside work of our life. Verse 4, and then he stood by and said, uh, sorry, sorry, those who stood by and said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And I just want to clarify, I don't think this applies today, right? It's supposed to be a joke. It does <laughs> apply today. I just, oops, sorry. (laughs) I don't know if Paul means this sarcastically, because he's like saying in a way, you don't act like a high priest. I'm not sure. I don't know if he just doesn't know he's the high priest, because he's been gone for 12 years. He wouldn't know, this new official. Um... I don't know if it's because Paul has vision problems. All throughout scripture, he writes about his ailment and and most likely his eyes. He can't see very well. I don't know. I do know that Paul is one to obey the law and honor it. And so I think that most likely he doesn't know who this person is or he wouldn't just spout off sarcastically and say that. But I tell you what, Paul challenges us to live in good conscience. Every believer is responsible for that. Paul is not saying that I'm standing here because this is a work that's been done for me. He's saying I'm standing here in good conscience because the work I'm doing is self reflection of my own life and motives and what I do. I stand here in good conscience. So he's not a whitewashed wall, he's standing there strong and secure. We have to model that in our life. The next thing that he talks about, and we see this reality in his life, is resurrection life. You know, it's the central theme of our faith. Paul says that if we don't have resurrection, then we're the most pitied people on the planet. But resurrection is real is what he says. I think Paul's life and mission in the in the news of resu- is in in the news of resurrection is his whole life. The news has to be spread and known. Listen to verse six. And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, Sadducees were people who did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe really in the spirit. They just held tightly to what would be the Torah. And they were mostly, in a way, corruptible. And political figures, but they ran the temple work. And the others, Pharisees. Now, Paul is a Pharisee, and we talked about this a little bit. Pharisees were very liked people. Like they were people that were beloved by the people. They were amongst the people. They were teaching them how to live out the laws that God had commanded. They were very strictly, at times, instructing them how to live. Jesus battled with them over certain things. But they wanted the people to live righteously as they could under the law. And they believed in resurrection. And so you have two parties who do not believe. And Paul says this, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. So we can see that Paul had a prominence in that, in, in that world. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now this causes a problem. But what he says is his, his core central message that drives him every step of the way. Resurrection. Now, I know this is not Easter Sunday, but, man, we, you have to know about resurrection. You have to own and embrace the message of resurrection without it where we're, we should be pitied. Without the belief and the hope and the faith of resurrection, We're wasting our time, Paul says. I think resurrection language, when you look at it throughout the Old Testament, you'll find you won't see it very much in the Old Testament. It's very scarce until the exile writings. And then we can see God's doing something new. He's like starting to allow people to get glimpses that something big is coming, something is going to happen. Something is going to change the world and a new thing is going to emerge in Israel's history. Uh, they weren't sure how it was going to happen. And they weren't sure when it was going to happen. But I'll tell you something they were not sure of. They were definitely not sure that it was going to come through the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come and liberate them through force and power. And set Israel up to reign and be God's people. That, that is not what they expected the Messiah to do. But this is what God meant by Messiah. Messiah. Not through the world's power, but through the Messiah of God's power. And and, and they didn't realize, I don't think either, that Jesus would be the first of the resurrection. And I don't think they realized that the resurrection was going to infect so much of the living and the dead. It was going to infiltrate the world in a way that no one could really anticipate. They were almost thinking 2D and God was doing something 3D. They didn't realize that the resurrection was going to be more than just Jesus rising from the dead or us just be going to heaven. The Resurrection was a restoration that was coming to the entire world. And this is what Paul lived and ate and slept by every single day. It was, a, it was central to who he was. So Listen, listen to 2 Corinthians 5.15. Uh, he flushes it out a little bit more. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves. That's a big part of resurrection. That when you live, you live for Jesus now. You don't live for yourselves anymore, which changes the way a culture will behave. But for him who, for their sakes, died and was raised from now on. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we read this last week about Paul's identity. If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation, something that had never existed, now exists. And uh, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Resurrection wasn't just necessarily, Christ defeated sin on the cross, and that began the revolution, honestly, it changed everything, to change dominion. But then the resurrection began something different, where not only was Jesus leading the way, but he was inviting us in to be a part of this. Reconciliation process. That is, Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we love this passage at this church. We are ambassadors for Christ, making God's appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, right? This is Good Friday. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good Friday, I think, ultimately, if you look at it, when we get there in Easter, Good Friday destroys sin's dominance over creation, and resurrection was the restoration of God's creation, God reclaiming it. The beautiful thing is we get to be invited into that process. And I think why why I'm probably pushing this right now so hard is because a lot of believers just don't know what they've been invited into. But when you know, you, you will operate like Paul. You are part of something that is part of God's kingdom that is reforming and reshaping this entire world. And we've seen its impact already on this planet and even more. I think with Jesus in the gospels, if you look at it as he's walking around as he is living on this earth. He, he, when he does things that we're just kind of like, whoa, well, that's kind of weird. What is he doing? When he does these things, they're glimpses of what God's ultimate rule is going to look like. They're glimpses of a restored world, resurrected world. When we see Jesus doing these things at glance, like this, like evil evil like spirits bow down to him. Sickness is like vanquished when his presence. Uh, the whole are made whole. those who are unwhole are made whole. And the world that's in chaos is brought into order wherever he interacts. What we see throughout the gospels. These are glimpses of what restoration, fully restored, will look like. And it's through Jesus. His resurrection was a seed of growth that was planted in a new garden. And we are part of. The fruit of that garden. And so we are then going and sharing the good news of the resurrection story with others. One believer at a time. I was looking and thinking about light. in in every time that we are responding to our, our, our identity and acting out in our identity and living in our identity. In clear conscious we become brighter and brighter and brighter lights. And that's ultimately what we're doing is we're illuminating the dark places all around this world. That's what we're called to do. We're not just waiting to die to go to heaven. That's not why Paul's excited about resurrection. Or he would have died a long time ago. He would have wanted to die there. But he was excited about what was happening on the earth and eventually will take place I was looking at these pictures of the Earth. Yeah, I put these up real quick. Put this first one up. This is a space view of what the world looks like now with power. And it's interesting because I, I just and I, I was so happy that I found Italy because this is where Paul ultimately wants to go and go beyond. But it, it's it's this thing of like this mental picture I get a little bit of like what it looks like as the world is responding to resurrection. As the world is becoming more whole, what God created it to be will ultimately finish. Put this next picture up. I, I didn't know this existed, but there's the part on the bottom, and there's the part on the top, and there's this blank part in the middle. Do you see that? That's North Korea, where they don't allow power to be on. And I, I just, it just really hit me that there are parts of the world, and I'm not necessarily talking about North Korea. I'm talking about there are areas that need light, And maybe there, like those three little lights that are going on there that you can see, there's little glimmers of hope, right, if we can look at it that way. But we're called to be in darkness and be light. I think the end of what we look at when God's kingdom comes to earth and God is amongst his people, it will be literally an entire place that is full of lights. There are lots of places around this world, and maybe even around our life that are dark like that, that God is calling His believers to be in the light. Listen to Revelation 24 or 21:4. This is the end. This is when God fulfills all things. This is when His creation has been transformed into His kingdom fully. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And when I look at those glimpses that Jesus did, everybody he encountered, these glimpses of what revelation looks like, whole scale, that's what we're called to do, to bring light to dark places, because God is bringing about his restoration. Paul lived by the hope of the resurrection. Well, Real quick, we're going to see here is that this resurrection talk makes the group so angry they want to rip him to pieces. Pharisees are saying, maybe he's right. Sadducees are saying, he needs to die. And so the council takes him away and puts him back in jail. And then we see this last part, and we'll end with this, that this courageous in Christ part. So he's clear and conscious, he lives by resurrection, and he is courageous in Christ. Jesus reminds Paul who is in charge. We need to hear this. He reminds Paul who's in charge and to be brave. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have, te- as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Do you read what was just happened? Sometimes we glance over it. That night, the Lord stood by him, resurrected Jesus, and it says, take courage. Don't be afraid. I am in control. Fear, worry, and doubt are, are, are overcome by the remembrance of who is with us and who lives in us. You, this word is for you and me. When Paul is in a place where he's just about ready to get ripped to pieces, he was just previously beaten literally almost to death, and he's facing another trial of people who want to kill him, Jesus says, don't worry. Take courage. Remember who's in charge. I'm with you. We have to remember that Paul lived in this. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So that, he did not give you a spirit of fear. He gave you power, love, and self-control. That is the message for the world, by the way. And that is the message we need to live by. God didn't come. He came in power, but the power is love and self-control. That is how the world is won. I'll just skip real quick to the very end. Paul, after this moment, it was a good thing Christ reminded him of who Christ was because there's a plot of 40 people who took a vow that they won't eat or drink until they kill Paul. Paul then, his arrangement, this is I think orchestrates perfectly, because then Paul's nephew, who we didn't know he had a sister, is sitting and overhearing their plans. And then comes and tells Paul, and Paul tells the tribune and says, listen, this is what's going to happen. And then he takes Paul, and he says, i got to get him out of here. All God's working and orchestrating behind the scenes. While Jesus is telling him to take courage, God is working things well beyond what Paul could even do. And sometimes we just got to say, I'm going to take courage. I know who's with me. And this is what's happening with Paul. I did wonder what happened to those 40 guys because they never did kill Paul. Did they just... Uh, I fasted for three days and it's really hard. I don't know how they did the 40, but they probably died. Verse 23. Verse 23. Then he called two centurions, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea. Uh, What? This is a monumental movement for someone to do as a tribune. He's sending half of his legion. Why does he do this? One, he's scared because Paul's a Roman citizen, and two, is there's 40 people who had said either he dies or we die. And so he knows he's got to get him there safely, and he's pawning him off in a way to the governor, Felix, who we'll talk about next week. The amazing thing is, is they bring Paul under the march of this army because it was the most dangerous route where k- killer assassins could await. And deliver him to the governor Felix. But let me read verse 35. It's in the very last one. He says, Felix says, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Meaning I'm going to make sure you see justice. And he commended him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. That's not a prison. That is a palace. What a a change that's all happening behind the scenes. That Paul has no control over. But yet, God is orchestrating, and Jesus just stands by and says, take courage, Paul. I think it's an amazing testimony to just trusting God when it doesn't look like it's going to work out. I want you to think about these things. I'm going to have you put some questions on the screen for you in a second, and we'll close. I want you to think about good conscience, resurrection, living, and courage in Christ. Here's the first question. As we... Uh, are we in step with the Spirit's work? You've got to ask yourself that question. Are we in touch with self-reflection of thoughts and actions in light of God's commandments and Christian principles? Are we in tune with that? Are we just ignoring it when it comes up against it and, and, and truth is calling it what it is and we just ignore it? Under resurrection living, are we living in and out the good news of the resurrection. Living in its truth is our identity and living it out of restoration and the message that we have. In touch with that reality, being light, hope in its truth. Are we doing that like Paul? And the last question, and we'll pray, is are we courageous in Christ? Trusting in what is not seen yet and holding fast, to the spirit that's within us power love and self-control i think those are some good questions to ask this week i think they're worth just contemplating on and, and sitting on and it might give a little bit more context of why paul can stand so boldly in the way that he's standing and why you also can do the same as we seek to live in those realities let's pray god we love you so much We thank you, God, for your word that gives us life, God, but we thank you for your spirit that gives us guidance, and we thank you for resurrection that has given us life. And so, God, I ask that each person, as we walk out today, God, we think about those three areas, and we take those questions to heart, and we reflect on them. And, God, that we aren't complacent in our faith, and But, God, we're a part of something bigger than we know. And, God, that we're swept up in the reality that's already happening. And, God, that we are active participants in the work of resurrection and restoration. And, God, we look forward for that day in light of everything we see around in this world, that by the world's standards, they just cannot do what the resurrection did and does. To that revelation moment in 21 where every tear is dried and everyone is made whole and we're all in the presence of you, God. Rightly the way you made creation to be, we want to be a part of that and whatever play part we can play. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and worship this last song?